This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Rob Connybeer. Welcome back to Launchpad on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Rob Connybeer. If you're listening right now and you have a question about starting up a new company, you have an idea you want to run by us, give us a call. Our number here is 844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. Thrilled to welcome my next guest, Ben Einstein. Ben is back on the show after a three-year hiatus. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Yeah, I, my sense is with Bolt, you're a lot busier now than you were three years ago. And in fact, it was a little harder to find time on your schedule to get you to come in and join us. So thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. What's, what's changed with Bolt in the last three years? Oh, man. Three years ago was a long time and hard to remember. Um, I think the big change has been opening a San Francisco office. And so we're just about to open a 14,000 square foot facility here in Soma, which actually I don't even think you know about, uh, which we're quite excited about. Uh, we just uh, did our 50th investment. Uh, so that's pretty different. Um, and uh, we have a new partner, which is uh, our third GP. And that, uh, uh, f- for those of you that are familiar with the venture capital world, know that that's a very big change, something that you guys have gone through before. So I think a lot has changed. Yeah. Well, so you're a, a venture fund focusing on very early stage investments in any particular sector? Almost all the companies we invest in are building physical products, and almost all of them are connected in some way, shape, or form to some piece of software or, or, or other service that consumers or, or enterprises So it's that use. interaction versus some people that might build stuff that's just pure software, Correct. it's delivered on other machines Correct. or services, or excuse me, devices. Mm-hmm. You actually aren't afraid to back companies that'll build both the hardware and the software that runs on totally. it. Totally, and it's something like ninety-eight percent of the investments we've made have some physical product that has to be manufactured and designed and developed in a pretty different way from a traditional software product. So I think you've undersold your third partner, the partner that you brought on, <laughs> Greg McAdoo. Yes, Greg. And for people that aren't familiar with Greg McAdoo, it's it's the guy who, on behalf of Sequoia invested in this little company called Airbnb. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and That's worked out pretty well so I far. I think they bought, what, yeah. like a quarter of the company or a third of the company. So this is probably worth tens of billions of dollars yes. today. Your partner. Yes, my partner. As of about six months ago, he joined. So how does that work when it goes from, it's the Ben show, <laughs> with some great colleagues that you're working mm-hmm. with, to now you have partners, you have this 18,000 square foot? Uh, yeah, 14, it's 14,000. Yeah, 14,000 yeah. square foot. Piece. How do you persuade people to join you? Oh man, it's a it's like a, very... a heavy hitter like Greg. How do you convince him to come and join you? Yeah, so Greg, for, you know, for background, Greg was at Sequoia for for almost thirteen years. Made many investments of companies that many people listening probably know. Um, and he's still sort of an engineer's engineer. You know, grew up uh, laying out circuit boards and writing firmware. Uh, mostly for networking companies, and then started to do some consumer investing once he was at Sequoia. And um, he had always found what we were doing very differentiated from the standard seed fund. You know, there's 300 some seed funds out there. Uh, I think many of them are, are, are quite similar, all attacking their sort of own specific area or thesis. And we have a way of working that just happens to mesh with the way he views company building. Uh, we're incredibly hands-on. We spend a lot of time with founders. Both of our facilities have big prototyping shops. And, and- to set the stage, when you say early yeah. and seed, what do you mean? How many people are in the company? Uh, many times our companies have one or two people. Uh, so oh, that's very, early. Very early. Okay. Um, I think uh, people have started to use this term pre-seed, which I think, I don't know what the next word is, nano-seed or something. You just have to keep inventing words to go it, earlier it'll and keep, earlier. It'll keep coming. Yeah. It'll be earlier. <laughs> nano-seed. Yeah. That's great. What is amazing, because there is this human motivation, it seems, to have great inflation. Hmm. So this is the like inverse say, grade inflation. Yeah, yeah when they yeah, say yeah. Series A, yeah. that's what Series C used to be. I mean, and and you've been doing this for a long time. A Series A now is very different type of financing than a uh, Series A today. Uh, which or, or uh, correction was is a very different Series A than what it used to be ten years ago. And I think many investors are finding that problematic, and they really like the early stage. Investments. Well, it's, it's 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 an interesting dynamic. I find it very funny hmm. when people talk about a $20 million seed round or a $20 million series A round. So when you look at the progression of financing, as you know, 
you have a truly small amount of money, it would be a few hundred thousand dollars mm. to get something going. That's totally. a seed investment. Yeah. And the other dynamic that you see with a lot of venture capitalists is they like the idea of having seen something before it was obvious. Mm. Mm. And everybody who comes after your stage is a banker. And everybody that invests earlier than your stage is just a monkey throwing darts. And so you're that- at the monkey throwing darts <laughs> stage by yeah. the way that a lot of the other people view it. So coming back to the Series A thing, mm. I think that people will call something a later stage investment because they want to appeal to the ego of later stage venture investors to say, hey, it's really early. Yeah. And you're really forward thinking. You're not <laughs> one of those banking lemmings. Yeah. You actually are really forward thinking. So just come I think in it's and- true. I, I also think there's um, every party in the system is incentivized to describe things as uh, earlier than they actually are. Every investor oh, wants to be yeah, the, the, the first money in. Every investor wants to meet the company at the lowest price. Every investor wants to be known for helping that company go from a crazy idea that didn't have any future without to taking the any of the risk. Of course, of course, right? So, so I think um, it was I, lined up. Yeah, yeah. nobody I, said it was just a layup. Totally, it was great. We tricked him into a low valuation. But, but like speaking of Greg, like when when he talks about you know first meeting Brian Chesky and the rest of the team when Airbnb was getting going it was wasn't called airbnb at the time it was called Airbed and breakfast and it was literally to sleep on you know airbeds, airbeds. <laughs> yeah uh and everybody thought it was insane they couldn't raise money i mean all these guys tell this great story about how hard it was for them to raise money you know the whole breakfast cereal thing where they had to they were eating their own breakfast cereal to survive oh that's right they made their own cereal they, they, they had to make their own cereal to survive they, they viewed it as a as a sort of a marketing uh, ploy but then they actually had to eat it uh, because they uh, didn't have any money um and and so that that to me, that is early, right? Uh, uh, and and so that's the the stage that we get the most excited. We also are helping the company build the prototypes of the product, and so we have a facility and an engineering team that sort of help the teams go through that process. And and so and, earlier and, is is yeah, easier for us. And and coming back to Greg, mm. bringing him on board, yeah. you were talking about how he saw a lot of different seed funds, mm. people doing similar things, but yeah. he felt you were really differentiated. Yeah, which so, is what he was attracted to. Yeah, and I think one of the big, um, one of the other big, very well-known investments that Greg made when he was at Sequoia is a, is a little firm we all know now called Y Combinator. Uh, and I think Greg saw a very different type of model and scalability and approach to venture investing with Paul Graham and Sam Altman and all those guys that had gotten Y Combinator off the ground uh, through the first money that, that, the first outside capital that went into into YC coming from Sequoia. And he found uh, something very compelling about that. And so I think was always, after the YC investment, was always looking for differentiated ways to invest and found uh, what we were doing. Uh, I can't describe exactly what the reasons were for him joining, but uh, definitely found it uh, compelling from his standpoint. Oh, you can't? You can't say why? Well, I mean, I think everybody has their own opinion about what they're doing. I'm sure some of those things I know. I have my own very strong biased opinions about why someone should join Bolt um, or take money from us or whatever. Uh, But I also think that a lot of that is a personal decision about what you fit and what you believe the future of the venture ecosystem is and timing and luck and all these other things that are really important components of finding great people to work with. So when you're going through this process of building Bolt, Mm. how big was it three years ago? How big is it now? Other than just the square footage. Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's not a great uh, index point of a good venture firm, as you know. Um, So the first fund was three and a half million bucks. Uh, It took us about a year to raise that, which is uh, somewhat embarrassing when I think about it now. Um, and it was me and my partner, Axel, uh, who, who was uh, actually originally just started part-time. Um, and then we spent, uh, you know, that first, uh, about two years or so investing in 18 companies, uh, out of that little tiny fund. And that was compelling enough for new, you know, institutional investors, LPs, uh, to, to, uh, support us in, in, in raising a $30 million fund for fund two. And uh, by that point, we were about 10 or 12 people, and we're now 16, I believe. 16. Uh, which wow. for a small firm is, is, is quite large, and a lot of that is driven by the footprint that we have, mostly engineers that work with our companies. And so those are mechanical engineers and electrical engineers and people that write firmware and industrial design and all that stuff. So f- the first fund, $3.5 million, mm. $30 million. Mm. And how big is the current one? 
Oh, just uh, just about to start operating off of our third fund, which is eighty million. Eighty million. Yeah, and that will be our steady state fund size, uh, hopefully forever. Uh, I should knock on some wood. Um, well, it's great. It's you can always raise them more frequently. <laughs> That's yeah. how you get to a bigger of fund, course. but yeah. you can still market it as a small fund. Yeah, and and we've just set up this way of operating, which is a little bit different than the standard fund. And so we have a budgeted management fee. Um, you know, all of our LPs know exactly our structure and our salaries and all the things that go into running the company. All have sort of budget approval and we try to be super transparent with the people that we work with uh, which again is a little bit unusual for a small fund and for people that might not be familiar with the concept of a management fee mm-hmm. it's basically a percentage of that overall fund size overall fund, that's yeah. charged to the investors each year right and the typical fund, fund to pay for the 14,000 square yeah. feet of space sure. and, yeah. the and the 16 people on yeah. the team and the plane tickets. Right, right. And so we, we, we've set up this this model, which is uh, away from the traditional, what's called 2 and 20, which is sort of the most common uh, sort of venture fee and carry model, uh, which is designed to be just more aligned with our investors. And we'll the see. Two it's per, the 2% being take 2% fee. of the yeah. fund size each year. And then the 20% is... Yeah. The percentage of the profits you take. Correct. And th- that's really what we care about. We're all in this for the long haul. And so a guy like Greg and, and my other partner, Axel, have both made you know plenty of personal uh, wealth. Uh, and so that's not their focus on the, on the 2% fee. They're really focused on the upside. And so we're super, just like an early founder of a company that's, you know really cares about that equity, we're sort of uh, designed to be incentivized the same way. So one of the things that I've always enjoyed about visiting your offices <laughs> is the teardown. <laughs> yes. And you'll just take something, you'll just tear it down. You'll tear down an old iMac. You'll tear down uh, different pieces of hardware, phones, etc. Beats, headphones. <coughs> Do you have a favorite teardown you've done? Oh, man, that is a tough question. Because <clears throat> you, you tear something apart. You take lots of great pictures and... In your office, you have, uh, I believe it's an iMac that you've ripped apart into its constituent components, and then it's all over the wall. Yeah, we have tons of them. Uh, and so I decided at some point when we first started Bolt that rather than buy fancy artwork for the office, we would buy used crappy products on eBay that didn't work anymore and take them apart. And people can actually learn from that and see how the parts are made. And wow, holy crap, this thing is really way more complicated than I expected. Um I really love tearing apart a Kiva robot. If people are familiar with with Kiva Systems, which is the uh, a company that actually was acquired by Amazon and sort of uh, uh, does total warehouse logistics using uh, robots, which is very cool. Um, and I, I happen and it's uh, based in the greater Boston area. Correct. Yeah. And and so I have a good relationship with the founder of that company and a bunch of their sort of early employees, and we were able to uh, get I won't say how um, a, uh, a Kiva robot uh, that was DOA and uh, took that apart, which was fascinating to see. So when you do a teardown like that, mm. now I have to ask about this robot <laughs> because the robot stands off the ground about a, a foot and a half. Uh, yeah, probably about eighteen inches. Yeah, looks kind of like a really big cooler. Yeah, right. It's very and large. it rolls around, has wheels underneath it, and then yeah. it picks up shelves and moves them around a warehouse. Yeah. How much does it weigh? The robot itself probably weighs would be like maybe four or five hundred pounds. It's pretty heavy. A lot of aluminum castings in there. Okay, so it weighs maybe as much as like ten or twenty percent of a Mazda Miata. I mean, it's no joke. Yeah, the weight it's, it's it very is heavy, heavy yeah. so it doesn't yeah. get knocked and, over. And, and it's lifting a. I think it can lift up to a ten thousand pound shelf. So it is. It, there's a lot of uh, torque in that. Okay, in that so motor. so do you? How do you get that in the back of a pickup truck, or how do you actually? Get it to wherever you're going to tear it down. How does that work? So I, I don't know how public I can be with this story, but uh, the CEO, uh, the former CEO and founder um, of Kiva Systems, Mick Mounts, uh, and I carried a 300-pound robot uh, on skids out of his car. I have car. to tell you, you don't look that big. Uh, yeah, you're taller I don't work than me, out, but yeah. you don't. <laughs> so you did it on skids. Yeah. And, okay. And it, it was, I think we had taken a couple of parts off, so it was a little bit lighter. But it's still it's. It, but where it was do you heavy. take it? Where do you do it? Is this in your garage? It was in our shop in Boston. And okay. So we have two big machine shops: one in Boston and one here in San Francisco, uh, with a bunch of equipment and you know tables and and you know CNC machines and three D printers and all the things that go into prototyping. And it's helpful when you're tearing down these and, big products. Where do you start when you go to tear it down? Because you have long experience in yes. designing and building hardware. Yeah, it's one so, of these things that just comes natural to me. When I was a little kid, my very cheap. Uh, uh, father who grew up quite poor um, 
always had to fix things himself. And I think when I was younger, he just assumed, hey, rather than whatever the dishwasher breaking and me hiring the Maytag guy to come, you know, replace the dishwasher, I'll just let my, you know, five-year-old son take it apart. Uh, and over that and over and you. over again. That was me. Uh, and so I was the you know, free child labor to repair appliances around the house. And you just learn how to think about products that way. And so every piece of hardware that I see without even really intentionally doing this, I, I sort of uh, figure out ways to, to, to tear it apart in my brain, even if I'm not actually doing it. Uh, for better or for worse, uh, some people find it quite frustrating. Um, I'm always looking for, you know, the way, uh, the way a plastic part is molded and how screws are assembled and different cables that are uh, sort of creating actuation and all the other things that kind of go into the product being built. Uh, and it's part of what I just love doing. Oh, we're going to get into that in just a second. But if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Conybeer. You're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 111. Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm here in the studio right now with Ben Einstein. He is the co-founder and a managing director at Bolt, a nationwide pre-seed fund focused on companies at the intersection of hardware and software. So it one, one thing that's really interesting about watching you build Bolt is you think about the elements of brand building. And it would be really easy to put art on the walls, but instead you put something that's free other than your time. Mm. And when people look at it, it reinforces the message that you think about all the components of what goes into these devices that that you build. Mm. Going back to when you were five and you were repairing dishwashers, (laughs) what was the most interesting thing you ripped apart and put back together? Oh, man, that is a great question. Anything Um, dangerous? Many dangerous things uh, that I probably shouldn't go into. Um, Where were you? Uh, I grew up in New Jersey and uh, in a town, uh, Princeton, that uh, probably some folks know. Um, and a lot of appliances. Appliances are actually surprisingly boring. Um, I got pretty bored of, of that. Uh, I got really into taking apart engines when I was a kid. Uh, I think it's like you know, automotive engines yeah, 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 or yeah. lawnmower engines. Yeah, I, I bought a car um, for fifteen hundred dollars, an Eagle Talon, which for a while was this very common car that people would soup up, and it had a turbocharger, and it was all-wheel drive and very fun. It's my first car, and that car was on uh, was on jack stands probably every weekend for two years. Um, and but it sounds like it went back and forth between being on jack stands and then operating. Yeah. It. Of of course, yeah, yeah. By by Sunday night at midnight or something, it had to be back together, which caused some problems sometimes. Um, but you know, I would do timing belts, I replaced the transmission, uh, engine head gasket, which is a very complicated thing. I don't recommend people doing. Um, and it's just fun. I would I had the service manual and and uh, you know torque wrenches and you know. Now, would you do this to enhance performance or just to fix? Stuff that went wrong. It was an old shitty car, right? So stuff would just break. Um, and in in those days, and this is even not that long ago. This is whatever, late nineties, early two thousands. Uh, most cars were pretty um, uh, analog, I guess I would say. Mo- most engines, and so without much diagnostic equipment, you could do you know a pretty serious amount of mechanical work. Now, you know, car I have now, I can't do anything without a you know computer and all kinds of other sophisticated equipment. So I, I could you know take the car apart and you know mess with engine timing and uh, you know replace you know valve bodies and all the things that kind of go into an engine and i just liked it Uh, so it was a fun thing for me to do when you were doing that how old were you oh man i was probably 17 17 when you were doing this did you get to a point where you crossed over from trying to figure out how this works to that was a dumb design decision all the time (laughs) all the time (laughs) yeah totally um with with certain types of things it's really challenging so uh, let's see if I'm looking at, I think let's go back to Kiva as, as an example. It's a thing I don't have a lot of context around, right? Like if you saw a Kiva robot, you'd be like, holy shit, that's amazing. Um, uh, I had the same feeling. I, I don't have a good mechanism for criticism. Uh, whereas if I take a consumer product now apart, because I've designed so many and have been around the process for so many. And you remember when you made mistakes, uh, of course, I'm and, sure. And, yeah. and I've made many, I still make many. Um, and I take apart, uh, let's see, uh, a Juicero as an example of, uh, of, of one that recently failed. Um, it and is, a Juicero. Juicero is... Oh, sorry. Uh, uh, this is a, a, a startup which raised a lot of money, $120 million, prior to launching a product. It's, a, it's a, uh, an, an at-home, semi-automated juicing machine. And it's kind of like the Keurig model where you have these, uh, these packets, uh, but instead of coffee, they're full of uh, sort of pre-ground uh, vegetable and, and, and fruit um, sort of matter. And then there's this big press, uh, automated sort of electrical press that kind of presses the pulp into this, this liquid juice. 
um, and it is a product that you uh, you could sort of see being really compelling. But um, it was seven hundred bucks. It was crazy expensive, right? And and then the packs themselves were expensive. So each juice was like six bucks or something for the raw materials. Um, and 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 you can kind of tell yourself the story of convenience. And I've made juice at home, and it's kind of a pain and messy. And you can kind of tell yourself the story that it's compelling. Uh, and then, then you come back to seven hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah, and you're like, holy crap, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, and so I remember uh, when I first got, I buy a lot of this crap because I just love taking it apart, and I, I think I can learn a lot, and our companies can learn a lot from it. So I, I, I spend more time than I probably should admit out loud taking stuff apart. Uh, and I was totally blown away by the way this particular product was built. And they're just decisions that are just way off in left field from the sort of standard uh, way that consumer products are designed. And uh, and so that I'm able to be quite critical of because I'm so familiar with costs and injection molding and all the sort of traditional technologies and processes that go into building consumer products. And this was, you know, five orders of magnitude away from that uh, or whatever. Uh, and, and, and so my, my ability... Ability to criticize she must have been fascinated when you took it apart. That's amazing. I, I mean, like, it's, wow, this person's really smart. Yeah, it's, the, the designer that worked on this part, totally brilliant. Oh, the, I mean, and 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 I, I say this with all due respect to the engineering team that built this product. It is an incredibly engineered product. It is just not how you engineer a consumer product. Yeah, um, kind of like the world's best four hundred dollar toothbrush. Totally. Yeah, totally. And and it's amazing and beautiful and and incredible in certain ways, but. Um, I've built an, a definition of engineering in my head, which is not just about the most incredible machining and most beautiful molding, but actually about the right uh, sort of solution for the given problem that you're trying to solve. And that takes into consideration reliability and cost and design and usability and all these other things that go into the product, which many people don't think about uh, and I think are unfortunately uh, very expensive if you get wrong, which is, I think, a big part of the reason that Drucero is no longer in business. So coming back to Bolt... Hmm. How many companies do you invest in per year? Uh, current investment pace is about 14 on, on average per year, so pretty high pace for a small shop. Um, uh, we are planning to increase that significantly uh, for the third fund. So we, even though our, our, our third fund is significantly larger, it's about three times larger than our, than our second fund, uh, the focus is still on these super early stage pre-seed companies, pre-product, pre-revenue and so, um, uh, you know, we, we, we are, our sort of model calls for relatively small checks and lots of companies and uh, sort of an unusual business model as, as, as the fund grows. Typically, the checks get bigger and you get a little bit more selective and you do instead of doing pre-seed, you do seed or instead of doing seed, you do series A. Um, and so we're super focused on knowing our core brand, which is really around supporting these very, very early stage companies. And so in order to, to support the fund size that we have and the business model that we plan on executing those uh, the sort of number of companies has to increase what do you what do you look for in one of these companies and uh, how do they find you typically or vice versa it is uh, there is a lot uh, of variability in the companies that we look at uh, the, the main the main thing that connects all the companies that we invest in um, is is the sort of physical product components and and that can take so many flavors uh, and so uh, I think the big mistake that many companies make when they think about uh, hardware is they think about it as the main product that they're building and this standalone thing they have to manufacture and sell at a profit. Uh, in reality, there are many companies uh, that are that are building uh, what we call hardware, which the average person might not consider hardware, right? And so, what do you mean you, by that? So. Um, Let's take uh, a company like Meraki. I don't know if you're familiar with Meraki. It's this uh, very well-known sort of enterprise-grade, really well-designed network infrastructure for small companies. Uh, and Wi-Fi. Uh, Wi-Fi, yeah, it's a it's a it's a fancy Enterprise way of saying Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi, correct. Uh, and so and switches and access points and all this stuff that kind of goes into that. Uh, this is a company that most people wouldn't really view as a hardware company, but in, is 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 in our core sweet spot of the types of companies that we look at. Um, there is a physical product has to be manufactured. There's recurring revenue. People pay a licensing fee every year or five years or whatever to to, to keep the, the 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 platform running. Uh, and so that that type of company fits very squarely in our wheelhouse, even though it's not the the, the 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 Fitbits or the GoPros or whatever that people think of when they typically think of hardware, they go to consumer, you know, low cost, high volume consumer products, and that's a whatever a, a tiny fraction of of our investments that we make. Do you ever get tired of giving some of the same advice? Uh, it feels like Groundhog Day. You know that movie with Bill Murray where he just keeps crashing the car at the end of, <laughs> of each course, day. Yeah. You're like, here it comes again. I mean, this is the thing that you I don't probably... need that many options. <laughs> this is the thing. What's that you... a Series A round? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's. I think that there's definitely a component of that. 
Um, I, I love, I genuinely love like watching founders learn to go through this process. And so, and there's always a different way to package the same comment to someone to make it resonate with more them. entertaining yeah for sure and more entertaining and more serious or more whatever that i think is really important to get them to sort of uh sort of excuse me to to absorb it um and so like, like one i talk about probably multiple times a day on average um is is, is actually uh very counterintuitive is, is, is actually raising less money uh prior to shipping your first product or at least having your first product ready to ship uh, and it's a mistake that many 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 hardware companies make especially consumer companies uh as, where they raise too much money and they have too many people and they don't have a product that people love using yet and they haven't figured out how to build it and they haven't figured out how much it costs and pretty soon you turn around and you got 100 people and this big complicated product and uh, you know launches big launch day and then um, and so I think it's very important to be incredibly thoughtful about when you raise money and how big your burn is, um, given the stage of the product. And so um, this is a thing I literally probably say have a conversation about at least once a day. So we've only got a couple of minutes for this piece of it. Mm. But as you know, I've backed a number of companies mm. that have raised yes. a pile of money before yes. they launched. Like yes. Nest, you saw Noon recently, of the light yeah. switch company. Pearl. yeah. Perfect. That's yeah. another one. I think that we support your your claim, <laughs> but how there are some companies where it works very well mm. to do that. Mm. What are some of the examples that have been really capital efficient prior to launch that I, are really working out that you hold out as great examples for these entrepreneurs? I think there are, there are there are many, um, and they come in different flavors, right? So um, I think one example that's easy to point to is is Fitbit, which I think is quite common. Um, and they shipped a product on a couple million bucks. Uh, you know, it's a low cost, you know, fairly quote unquote easy product. There's minimal technical risk in building that product. But it didn't exist. Nobody but it, was but doing it. But it didn't exist, right? And so there is a lot of work. And, and you know, if James or any of the early um, guys at Fitbit were here, they'd say, what the hell are you talking about? This was really hard. Um, but it's hard in different ways than people typically think about hardware. It was hard in terms of, you know, form and fitting and number of SKUs and waterproof and all these other sort of important components of a wearable product they didn't really there weren't really wearable products in 2007 when they launched that product uh, and so you have to sort of think a little bit differently about what they were doing there um uh but but you know very different from launching a um you know whatever um uh, a company even like pearl which is actually quite complicated lots of different parts and different you know sensors and machine parts and castings and whatever yeah um, for people that aren't i i would imagine most people are familiar with fitbit for yeah. people that weren't familiar with pearl yeah Pearl is a company that we had backed that unfortunately didn't work out, mm. but they were building a backup license plate frame with mm. a solar frame or a solar array on it to power it. Totally. So you could just screw it on yeah. and then you use your smartphone as a remote video screen so you could yeah. back up with your car. But it was a $500 product. Yeah. And, and, and I, I think I have, I mean, I know a handful of the founders there and some other early employees. There's some amazingly good people that were at that company. Um, but I, I, I think this is a, a core example um, that one could use around being super thoughtful and capital efficient prior to launch. And I think uh, the story of Pearl would be very different if they had shipped a product pretty early. Maybe it wasn't as perfect and beautiful. Um, and and uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I want to be very respectful because I think it's actually quite an interesting product and company. Um, but but I think there are a couple of different things that that company could have done to be able to still be around today. Maybe they wouldn't be as successful. Well, let's come back people. to these topics in a minute. We need to take a short break. I'm Rob Conibier, founding and managing director at Shasta Ventures. I've been speaking with Ben Einstein, the co-founder of Bolt. Stay with us. We'll continue our conversation after the commercial break. You're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back to Launchpad on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host this week, Rob Conybeer. I'm a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures. So I'm continuing my conversation this hour with Ben Einstein. He is the co-founder and a managing director at Bolt, which is one of the leading, and probably soon to be the leading, hardware early stage seed fund. And when we left off before the break, Ben was giving me a hard time about one of the companies that we had backed called Pearl. <laughs> and rather than edging away from this conversation. I think it'd be interesting to hear your, your views on this this company. And for people that didn't hear the conversation, what Pearl was building, it was a really strong team that had come out of Apple and building a backup camera 
that was incorporated into a license plate frame had a solar array on it, had wireless connected, so you could use your smartphone as a backup camera. Hmm. But it cost about $500. Yeah, and, and the product was, I actually just saw my first uh, first version of it um, the other day uh, in person, and it is incredibly well We had one of the key product designers yeah, 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 uh, yeah. walk you through it. Yeah, and, and so um, the the product manager there, Tyler Mincy, was was sort of, you know, pulled out one of his units and sort of taken took me through the entire process of building that product and it is an amazing feat of engineering um you know there's there's a, p- a pair of cameras that are doing stereo vision uh there's a there's a you know pretty interesting mounting system that goes in the license plate to make it super easy to install it has to you know be able to absorb different types of license plate bolts and mounting so there's all this sort of complicated work you have to do there there's a connector that goes into the odb2 port in the car where the sort of data system is actually telling you okay you're actually in reverse now so you can actually turn the camera on um there's a mount for the phone on the vent all these little pieces you have to build uh which drives the cost up and just makes it really complicated and uh i'd actually be curious to get your take on on uh sort of the mechanism of what calls failure but the thing that that i would point out most of all is is a you know a big team 75 people or something um all with you know very good resumes and some excellent folks that they had hired um prior to the product being uh you know being sort of validated by consumers and it's it's one of the things that we try so hard to push founders to like really focus on whatever mechanism you can use for traction uh, as early as possible to 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 just make sure that they're willing to pay whatever that price point is going to be yeah i think there are different approaches and we were talking about do you have a big team yeah. or do you have a smaller team? And I think here, when we originally invested in the company, we thought that the price point in the market would be around 200 to $250. Totally different. And it turned yeah. out that at $500, it's just a very, very challenging market because there's other things that consumer would rather, consumers would rather spend their money on. Totally, yeah. So it's an interesting challenge because in general, when we've backed hardware companies, we've taken the Nest-like approach, which is to go big mm-hmm. around categories that we think can be really important. So Wi-Fi is one of them totally. with Eero. There's Noon that launched recently, mm. and that's a company that still has the vast majority of what they've raised. raised yeah. But it's a product that is not something like a fitness tracker. Mm. It's something that when it goes into a person's home, you expect to use it for 10-plus years. So all the work that you have to do just fundamentally requires a ton of money totally. to do that. And, and I, I always think about products um, when, when having this conversation on, on, on sort of two dimensions. One is what I call technical risk, which I think people understand pretty well. And that is the likelihood that there's something fundamental about the product that makes it unable to manufacture or sell or use for a long period of time, et cetera. Um, and I think many, product, many investors and many founders really understand uh, technical risk quite well. Uh, the, the the other risk, which I think people don't understand quite well, is what I call product risk, which is the likelihood that the product value proposition won't live up to the consumer's expectation and is the thing that causes immense pain in the product world um, of hardware, which I spend a lot of my time in. Um, and and it's, it's one of these things which is actually hard to validate prior to the product actually shipping. And so um, Fitbit is a, is, is a fairly interesting example. It has low product risk if the product doesn't work out that well eh, it's not that big of a deal you spend 99 bucks maybe buy a new one maybe for the consumer for the consumer it's yeah. not the end of the they don't world. care that much right if your steps are a little bit off if it's if you took 10,000 but it's supposed to a light 10, switch that's right that you've wired into the wall or you've had somebody wire into the wall that's they right. had to turn the breaker off that's put right it in. that's right and expectations are very different and if your light switch doesn't work one time you're going to be pissed forever Right. Um, if your backup camera system doesn't work one time, you're probably going to be pretty frustrated, right? So there's a lot of product risk there, um, and 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 so we're uh, uh, incredibly focused on making sure that companies understand their product risk. And if you have high product risk, you need to de-risk that as soon as possible. Um, technical risk, you can you can almost always figure out, uh, but but product risk is something that you can't figure out. Yeah, it's, it's sort of inherent in the category of the product. And so sounds like a lot of consumer psychology. I think so. Yeah, I, I, which I think is a very important thing for investors to think about when you're when you're you know, charting new territory into a product. Um, the, the 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 fitness market, as an example, is is quite tolerant of product risk, um, uh, and and it's not a big deal if your exercise machine doesn't get used all the time. And so people, because people often don't use it, uh, and so it just sort of changes the expectations that the consumers have. And so I think it's just important to be thoughtful about um, uh, making sure you don't have both of those risks. If you have high technical risk and high product 
product risk. You are in for a world of pain, and you're not going to be able to execute unless you raise tens of millions of dollars prior to shipping. So one of the things we were talking about before is what's it like to be giving the same advice over and over and over again? And it sounds like it's something that you really enjoy. Yeah. And I can understand that. I mean, it's, it's, it's great to work with people that are very talented to help them put the pieces together. Totally. One thing I'm curious about and I hear from people is this idea of work-life balance. Mm. And I have a pretty strong point of view about this. For listeners that are thinking about starting a business but they're worried about work-life balance, what, what would you say? So I have a, a probably a differing approach from you. Um, I'm a little bit younger in my career. Um, this is the second company I've started, uh, but definitely the one that has the most legs from a from a from a sort of longevity standpoint. Um, and I deeply love what I do. And so coming to work every day, with a couple of exceptions, doesn't feel like work. Uh, when I'm whatever working with a founder on how to design a product, or you know helping them assess five different options of what looks right and what feels good in a consumer's hand, um, or helping them tell their story about how to raise money or something, uh, all those things give me um, energy and enjoyment. And so I actually don't view it as work. Uh, now there are of course things you know raising money and going to LPs and advisory committee stuff and some other things that we all have to do to run a business definitely does feel like work. And those things are slightly less uh, fun for me. But even in that way, you can tell your yourself a story that it's a really important part of what you do. Um, and so I, um, I don't feel like, uh, my work-life balance, even though I work many, many hours a week, um, is out of whack in any way, shape or form. But I also like, I'm unmarried. I don't have kids. I, you know, I'm pretty like flexible with time and commitments and other things. And so my work-life balance, um, is, uh, I don't necessarily draw the hard but it's dividing line. It's aligned. Yeah, I think so. It's all lined up. Yeah. Um, but, but I think there are many people that view I need to have a nine-to-five and I need to be able to come home and have this specific sort of schedule around taking care of my kids or whatever. Um, and I think those things are, are un- uh, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on your perspective, things that I don't have to deal with right now and will have to at some point. Well, I think one of the things that I say typically is if you're worried about work-life balance and you're thinking about starting a company, <laughs> probably not a good idea. Yeah, I, I think it, that's Because it advice. has to be all-consuming. It is. And I think people that don't do it in an all-consuming manner are more likely to cause themselves hardship and pain uh, and actually struggle just in very different ways. The company won't be as successful. You'll have high turnover. You want to attract great people, et cetera. There's something very uh, uh, important about being deeply committed and authentic to what you're doing that other people in your sort of solar system of people that revolve around you as a company get really attracted to. And I think even, uh, you know, Bolt is a relatively small company of 15 some odd people. Even in that small small environment, me being really excited and authentic every day to come to work and build things with folks is, uh, I think, is a very attractive part of what keeps the sort of gravity around the company. Uh, and I would argue that that's very true, maybe even more true for the founder and CEO of a, you know, of, of any kind of startup. Um, and so I would argue that if, if, if commitment is not something that you're comfortable with from a many hours and many years standpoint, uh, starting a company is not for you. So if you're just tuning in, I'm Rob Connybeer, and you're listening to Launchpad on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm here in the studio right now with Ben Einstein, the founder and a managing director at Bolt, which is a leading national seed stage hardware investor hmm. with offices in San Francisco, Boston, and New York City. Correct. So speaking of a lack of balance... How often do you visit these different offices? Oh man! So for um, for about uh, a year and a half, I did. Uh, you know, Bolt started in Boston. I would uh, have uh, you know, I would have a full week in Boston uh, on Monday morning at the six fifty nine Virgin America flight. Uh, would head to Logan and would fly to San Francisco, and then would spend Monday to the following Monday. Uh, in San Francisco, and then we get on the same uh, flight reverse and go back. Uh, Do you have apartments on, in both places? I, I had apartments in both places. Okay, uh, was, you said had. Uh, I, I guess I technically still do. Okay, um, I you know I uh, for many years lived a very cheap uh, lifestyle with roommates and all those things, and uh, actually still do that in my Boston place, and so it affords me the ability to have multiple places. Uh, less easy to do in a place with a you know with a domestic partner, uh, and so that's the sort of uh, the, the life. I lead now is a wonderful, um, you know, small apartment in Boston with a pair of friends um, and uh, an apartment here. In so this is just a logistical question. Yeah how how does laundry work when you're doing this? (laughs) Do you do you even have to pack stuff, or do you just get on the plane with your laptop and this backpack I see you have in the studio? Yeah. 
So there's no luggage. No luggage. Uh, this is th- this backpack you see here has traveled many, many, many Virgin America flights. Um, I am also uh, quite thrifty when it comes to clothes. I own you know a couple pairs of jeans in each location and a bunch of t-shirts, uh, and so I just have a stockpile of clothes in one, a stockpile of clothes in the other, and just. So you just had the staples both places. Do yeah. you even store food in each of these apartments? Mi- minimal food. Um, na- I guess the one with roommates, you probably never. I have just food eat their food. They- oh, you do. You're the guy. Oh, you're the one. Okay. We have an agreement. There are two types of roommates, right? There are ones that lose food and there are others that just yeah. take what's available. I, it's it works out well. I think the trade off is they get a roommate that's there fairly rarely, which you know, if you're a if you're a young uh person who owns an apartment, it's kind of nice to have a roommate that's not that's there. That's pretty good. Well when we talk about consumer psychology, rationalization, I completely Very understand important. what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah. So going back to the beginning of Bolt. How did you get started in this? Where did it come from? So before I started Bolt, I ran a product design consultancy. And so probably people are familiar with IDEO. is probably the best-known company in that category. Uh, even them, they're, they're sort of getting out of that, that world a little bit. But there are many, many companies that traditionally large corporations hire to do outsourced product development for them. Uh, and they pay a sort of fixed monthly fee. And I, or or a product fee or whatever, uh, and and I was uh, after doing this for a bunch of years. I was sort of yeah, it's just advice for money, consulting for, sure. for money. Yeah, yeah, and and you're selling your time. Yeah, uh, and and so we we got to become pretty successful and started to work with a small uh, a number of smaller companies that were just getting going. Which, as a service business, you're really not supposed to do as you get bigger because it doesn't make economic sense. But all of the folks at my last company were very. Um, felt very empowered and excited to work on these little tiny projects of, you know, an inventor in Wisconsin trying to build a thing or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so we, f- but they couldn't pay. So they, we would figure out all these sort of hacked together ways to like, cause you wanted to do we it. We wanted to do it. We, we, it was almost like pro bono work for a lawyer. Um, and so like in a couple, we, uh, we had a royalty structure that we took. So every unit that the, that the founder or inventor would sell, we would take a couple of dollars, um, which worked out, uh, almost no times. Um, we took equity in a couple of companies. I didn't even really understand what that was, uh, at the time, uh, I'm sort of naive on the business side. Um, and, uh, and, but you know, you sort of like figure it out as you go. Uh, and, and a couple of those worked out really well, uh, two in particular. Uh, and one was actually the first iPhone accessory that, that, that made it to the market uh, that was over Bluetooth, which was kind of a big deal at the time, uh, and uh, sold many, many units of, of that product. And we got a couple of bucks every time they were sold. And at that point, the sort of light bulb went off. Like, there's got to be a better way to more efficiently work with these tiny little companies other than charging them $500 an hour to, to work with you as a service business. And that was the sort of light bulb that eventually led me to Bolt, which was, is there a way to work with these tiny little companies rather than have ha- having them give up a bunch of money and time and resources um, actually serve as sort of a common infrastructure for all the companies that we, we would work on together. And, and that was sort of the founding sort of nugget of what got Bolt started. And it wasn't until I met my partner, Axel, that the sort of investment part of that became such an important part of the way we Then worked. it became real. That's when right. You started working with Axel. That's right. Yeah, and cases. and you know he had he had been at a venture firm in Boston, a well-known firm, Atlas Venture, uh, you know, for 19 years at the time. Oh, so he was uh, a guy with a track record. He knew what he was doing. And yeah. you were the smart one. I, no, 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 no. Couldn't be more further from the truth. <laughs> I was the energetic weirdo that liked building hardware, uh, and he was the serious business person that knew what he was doing and would make sure that we wouldn't get in trouble. Now, uh, in those days, did you know it was going to be bicoastal from the no, beginning? No, no, no. Or was Boston no. and New York? It's funny. I actually, yeah. I, I, I thought about uh, so I was I, I was in Boston. I thought about um, I have a, a, a good friend, a guy named Brad Feld, who some uh, uh, listeners may know is another well-known um, sort of hardware-oriented venture uh, investor, extremely and successful, based successful. in Colorado, but yep. flies based everywhere, from yep. what I understand. Yep. Uh, and so I, uh, he was trying to convince me to move to Boulder, um, and I had a couple of other folks that were trying to convince me to do this in San Francisco. Uh, and I decided that I really liked the attitude in Boston. It's this very heads down engineering driven culture. Um, it's a little bit smaller. So I felt like I could get sort of get going a little bit easier. And, uh, I think that was definitely the right call for where we were at the time, but we, it's very important for, for a firm like ours, which has a, you know, I think someone call a specific focus to be, you know, ge- geography agnostic. And that was sort of the big push for us to open a San Francisco office about a year and a half, two years ago. Okay. And that you did with sponsorship from anybody? No sponsorship. No sponsorship. Um, friendship? The, the, uh, uh, very deep friendship. Uh, uh, most 
most importantly, um, a, a company that uh, probably many people know, Autodesk, uh, which uh, was an early investor in our first fund, second fund, and third fund. Um, and they're and, a, a leading developer of yeah, CAD software, yeah, computer-aided design, manufacturing, yeah. hardware software. Yeah, so, so when you go to design a building, you're using Autodesk software to design it, and many other things, uh, you use software that, that, that they've built. Um, and they had, uh, they very fortunately, um, as an investor, had also built this beautiful facility here, uh, which is pretty well known now, called Pier Nine in downtown San Francisco, which has you know twenty million dollars of prototyping equipment and just a sort of amazing experience. Uh, and 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 Carl Bass, the the CEO at the time, was very forceful in trying to get us to move there. Um, and so we decided to take him up on that offer, sort of a temporary test. And that was yeah probably about two years ago now. Okay. Uh, so it was a good sort of like soft landing pad that we could come to without spending. You millions of dollars to build out our own facility like we have to do now. So one of the things I've seen as you've built the firm is you've been investing in the future mm. a lot. Mm. And you've invested in a team you've built out. You've invested in content. You've invested in your own art mm. in these pieces. <laughs> Most importantly, the art. The art. I, I think so. The, these teardowns are amazing. Yeah. And you've talked to me in the past about how you get the team. You go and do offsites, and then you'll write the blog post for the next six months. Mm. We, How does that work? Try my best. Um, so writing for me is really hard, uh, and uh, I am not a writer. I, when I am working on a product and someone tells me that it's wrong and needs to be fixed, I'm excited and energized to go make the changes and whiteboard things and build prototypes. When someone tells me a thing I've written is not good, it feels painful and it's hard and it feels negative, and I have to sort of like deal with the repercussions of writing something. I'm just not a writer. Um, but it's become a very important sort of brand building um, and, and knowledge sharing tool for Bolt. Uh, and so I've become like. So it's important, but it's like eating your vegetables. But yeah, it's like something I, I kind of like am against. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I do, however, love that I get so many people eating. Uh, <laughs> Eating vegetables, no. Um, emailing me and, and, and asking questions or saying this was great or can you write more about this thing or whatever. I find that really empowering. Um, but but it's definitely not my favorite thing. I don't wake up in the morning and say, oh, I really want to write something. And so I find So it's kind of like when you do a great teardown. Yeah. You're enjoying the teardown. I, I have so much fun. But then the writing. But you know yeah. after you've taken the pictures during the teardown that you're going to have to write it. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's an element of truth to that. The, the teardown posts are fun for me because I uh, – I, I think in product, and so it's very physical and tangible to me. So writing a paragraph about how something is molded or how something is cast or whatever is is, is easy for me. Writing, uh, you know, a couple pages about uh, an operating plan or about how someone should negotiate with a manufacturer this is a little harder for me. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I found a great tool for that is for me to get away from normal daily life for some extended period of time and just write. Um, and it's very helpful and energizing. And Where I do feel, you guys typically go? Oh man, all over the place. Um, do you get on boats? Uh, I've I've done a couple of boat trips. Never uh, never been super successful with the writing. Sometimes the drinking gets in the way of the writing on a boat. It's very hard to avoid drinking on a boat. It's it's like a thing in boat culture. Um, uh, boat, boat culture. Bolt. Bolt. I guess both. Bolt, no, boat. Boat no, no. culture. Mostly. Boat culture. Okay. Um, and, you know, you, 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 if you're on a boat of any kind, there's almost always rum, especially if it's in the, if it's in the Caribbean, um, which is great fun. But if you're trying to write and be thoughtful, it's it doesn't not, work so well. not so good. Suddenly, um, tomorrow looks a lot better <laughs> that's for right, writing. That's right. That's tomorrow right. looks great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So, so um, I, I like to go up to um, so the Napa area, Sonoma is really nice. And they have some pretty cheap Airbnbs that I've stayed at before that are, you know, nice and comfy. And I can it, just it's pretty interesting. Having known you for a while, people hear these types of things in where you're going, we go to the Caribbean, right? <laughs> we go to Napa, but you are cheap. Very cheap. And <laughs> you seem to find a way to do this for like 10 bucks a day or 20 bucks a day. Very cheap. And I, I do know that the Airbnbs that you stay in are really <laughs> not that great. They <laughs> really are. <laughs> it's really, it's amazing how much money you're able to save. Yeah. And it kind of comes back to putting in all these these hours and the sacrifices you make along mm. the way. I can't overstate the difficulty in getting to the point where you are right now because you've, you've hired 16 people, but you've only just started to work on this $80 million fund. Totally. It means that yeah. you've been investing for years and years and years in the yeah. business. Yeah, yeah. We, we haven't actually formally started investing out of the new fund. But I think that's the that's the – commitment that we make as founders. I mean, you're, you're a founder as well. Um, it is, uh, I think many people, unfortunately, uh, as soon as there's the term VC, they have a different framework for thinking about founders. And we try really hard to dispel that. Now, I, I will not lie, like our ability to survive, uh, you know, 
difficult times as a venture fund is much better than the average startup. Um, and I think most venture funds that you know do well and work hard and have great LPs, et cetera, wind up surviving for many years. Whereas you, there are many great companies, we've talked about a few of them here, that did all those things and are gone a year or two later. Uh, and so I, I do think in some elements we live a cushy life, but um, we've set up this structure, which is, you know, I don't make a big salary relative to lots of other VCs. Um, I, I think founders see that and they and they sort of empathize with that. Uh, and, and I think that allows us to be more thoughtful and more genuine with the advice that we give to the companies that we invest in. So, so looking ahead, you talked about planning to have $80 million fund and then another $80 million fund <laughs> and right. then another. So basically sticking to your knitting and doing that, where do you see Bolt in five years? Where do you see Bolt in 10 years? Mm. Uh, that sounds kind of boring if you're not doing anything new. That, but see, and, and you know this better than I do, like the venture world as, a, you know, as an investing partner is incredibly dynamic. It's one of the most dynamic jobs I think one can have. I mean, literally every single day is littered with new companies and founders creating new ideas to change the world. And I say that totally authentically is that's literally what you're doing all day. Um, and so I, I don't view it as boring even if the fund size is the same. Uh, it is unlike uh, a startup where whatever, if revenue doesn't go up, it's basically going down. Uh, I, I don't think that fund size correlates that way. Um, it, it is, you know, a very firm commitment that we've made to ourselves, the three GPs and also RLPs, that we have a, a very specific thing that we're good at, which is being the first couple hundred thousand dollars into these connected hardware companies. Um, you know, that definition might change a little bit over time, but it will always be that that's core. the focus yeah that's you're going to keep it keep yep. doing that as the core and, and i think if we stray from that it, it sort of weakens our brand it sort of weakens uh, uh what we do and it weakens our ability to empathize with those founders so when you come back on the show in another three or four years <laughs> what do you hope and we have a just a minute here what do you hope to be able to say about bolt then that's a great question i um i think the the most important thing for me is the people uh, and so both the people that work with me, so, you know, Greg is a new partner and, and my other partner, Axel, um, and, and our entire staff, uh, I think them all being incredibly happy and fulfilled with doing what they're doing uh, here, I think is really important to me. Same goes for the founders that we work with. Um, I want uh, Ali and other great founders that we've worked with uh, over the last couple of years to continue to believe that we're, you know, one of the best sort of partners that that, that, that one can have. Um, I, I view that as really important to, to me and, and, and sort of a primary indicator of how we're doing you know i think you know us returning some money to our investors that would be a nice thing um and as a fund that's uh, just uh, turning four um you know it's not something that people expect of us yet but should soon uh and i'm a big sort of objective data guy i, I want i want this business to actually work uh right. and we haven't hit that yet well, well we'll have to wrap but we'll have a birthday cake for you next time <laughs> well, sounds ben, good ben thank you so much for joining us on the show again thanks rob this is great fun and for people that want to follow you on twitter where do they go Ben Einstein. Ben Pretty Einstein. Easy. Okay. And Bolt? Uh, Bolt VC. Bolt VC. Thanks again, Ben. Thank you. So that just about does it for today's show. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in. To follow me, I blog regularly at 280.vc, or you can follow me on Twitter at Rob Conybeer. I'd like to thank today's guests. We had Frank Robles, the Vice President of Global Operations at Digital Town, and once again, Ben Einstein from Bolt. Thanks also to our producer, Dana Cash. Assistant producer Charlene Goto, our engineer Tatiana Zamiz, and thank you for joining us for today's show. I'm Rob Conybeer, a founder and managing director at Shasta Ventures, and you've been listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, One Love. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.